afternoon, everyone. I'm Patricia Duff, and I'm thrilled to welcome you for a very important conversation with our fascinating guest. So we're going to get right to it. As you know, intelligence services have always served as a vital part of our country's defenses. Through intelligence gathering, we can know what our enemies and even know what our friends are doing. These organizations, especially the CIA, have helped ensure America's safety by many means, from espionage, covert action, ever more sophisticated technical tools on every continent, but often facing moral quandaries. It's challenging to run an agency shrouded in secrecy that only answers to the presidency, especially when they have to tell the president something he doesn't want to hear. Clearly not an easy job. As the Trump era ends and the Biden administration begins, our policies will shift. The past four years have been unprecedented for our intelligence services. What kind of damage has been done? What can we expect in the coming months? And what can the past directors like George Tenet, John Brennan, Leon Panetta, and David Petraeus teach us? To bring this topic into focus, we have the brilliant multimedia journalist, Chris Whipple. Chris has won multiple Peabody and Emmy Awards as a producer at CBS 60 Minutes and ABC's primetime programs. And now he excels as a best-selling author on our institutions and our leaders. His last book, The Gatekeepers, uh, on White House Chiefs of Staff was a New York Times bestseller, and we are proud to have him today with his brilliant new book, The Spy Masters. Chris, we are so happy to have you here. And to help us make the most of this important conversation, we are extremely fortunate to have someone who also knows a lot about this topic, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and columnist Kai Bird. His books have received both critical acclaim and popular success, including the New York Times bestseller list and as a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. And of course, just to show us all up, he is a previous and well-deserved recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Hi, we're so thrilled to have you join us. And now I'm gonna turn the conversation over to you and Chris, thank you. Okay, thank you, Patricia, for that lovely introduction, except I have to make one correction. I'm not a genius. <laughs> I, I did get a, a MacArthur Fellowship, but it's the non-genius, the sub-genius uh, fellowship. Good enough. <laughs> anyway, I'm delighted to be here this afternoon to talk to Chris about his new book. Um, you know, we all love spy stories, and this new book is chock full of them, uh, and they're all true. And, but I want to begin this conversation with a funny little story I learned when I was writing my biography of McGeorge and William Bundy. Uh, and this is the story. In 1950, then CIA director Walter Beadle Smith asked William Langer, the renowned Harvard professor of history, to take over the CIA's Office of National Estimates, ONE. Smith told Langer, um, trying to seduce him into taking the job, that the need was urgent. The outbreak of the Korean War had demonstrated that the agency had not been doing a very good job on its intelligence estimates. And as an inducement, Smith offered Langer a staff of hundreds to do the job. Well, Langer paused and then replied in his very high-pitched Dorchester Boston accent, well, I can't possibly do the job with more than 25 people. What he meant was he wanted a lean and small operation and that would do, that would 
he thought result in good intelligence. So my first question to you, Chris, is today, how many analysts does the CIA employ? Well, <laughs> before, I, before I answer that question, uh, Kai, let me, let me just say quickly, just a couple of shout outs first to the great Patricia Duff for putting this together. Um, what an amazing organization. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be here. Um, a shout out to my pal, Nancy Collins, uh, who, who may be with us. And uh, Kai, I'm, I'm just really pleased to be here with you. I wanna show you, this is, this is one of my favorite books, by the way, and you can see it's dog-eared and full of post-its. Um, so I, someday I hope I'll be able to talk to you about that. And uh, of course, the answer to your question, I'm, I'm sorry, but I could tell you, but you know the rest of how that goes. Um, the, the answer, of course, is classified. I have no idea how many analysts there are at, at the CIA, um, but there are a hell of, hell of a lot of them. Uh, tens of thousands of people work for the CIA. Uh, the number is unknown, the exact number. What I did learn from writing the book is that the CIA director commands an army of analysts, covert operatives, paramilitary warriors, lethal drones, and all kinds of other stuff. But all of it is for naught if he or she does not have the ear of the president of the United States. Uh, it's, a, it's an almost impossible balancing act because on the one hand, the CIA director has to be able to tell the president what he does not want to hear. And at the same time, he or she has to have his, uh, his ear, uh, a seat at the table, or, uh, or, you, or he's wasting his time. Right, right. Well, that's clearly what you focus on in this book is the, the, the directorships and the, the top of the agency <clears throat> and their relationship to their, their closest and most important client, the president. And this, the whole book, I think one of the themes is to under, underscore the idea that there's a dilemma here, which you've just alluded to, that um, their job is to try to provide good intelligence, but that often means telling the president uh, what they don't want to hear. Yeah. And, you know, there's a sort of sad history with the CIA, I'm afraid, in that there are, quote, a long list of intelligence failures. But what's more interesting is that there's a long list of, of successes where they actually get the intelligence right. But nevertheless, the, the president who doesn't want to hear it ignores the good intelligence. Even when it's good, exactly. <laughs> and so you have, uh, I think one of, you know, why don't you talk about one or two of those instances? I'm thinking of like Richard Helms telling LBJ that the domino theory is, is not applicable to the Vietnam War and it's not, not informing him. Yeah, well, um, as you say, Kai, I mean, Richard Helms is a great place to begin because he, and, and frankly, I, I was lucky because the cast of characters I had to work with uh, is you couldn't have dreamed up. Beginning with, I, I start with Dick Helms in the 60s because I think he was the quintessential old school director. I could have gone back to John Foster Dulles, but 
I began with Helms, who, you know, marti dry martini in one hand and cigarette in the other. He could, um, he, he not only could tell LBJ hard truths, but he could hold his own on a dance floor with Fred Astaire, uh, which he did at the 1975 state dinner for the Shah of Iran. Um, yeah, there's a picture of his, it in the book, right? And there's a photo of it in the book. He's dancing with his wife, Cynthia, and, and, and uh, Astaire is dancing with the Shabanu of, of Iran. Um, anyway, Helms is a fascinating character, as, as, as you know, as well as anyone, Kai. And my, maybe my favorite story, I, I mentioned Cynthia Helms, his widow. I spent a lot of time with her. She died in the summer of 2019, sadly, but at 95, she was full of great stories, some of them untold. One of those stories had to do with uh, Helms on his own authority decided to commission a study of the so-called domino theory, which some of us are old enough to remember was the underlying basis for the Vietnam War, the, the notion that every other country in Southeast Asia would fall if we let South Vietnam go under. And, he, and the conclusion was that it was full of holes. Uh, that it was just a flawed theory and no basis for fighting a war. He delivered this in a sealed envelope to LBJ, according to Cynthia, she told me. LBJ um, didn't want to hear it, uh, wound up giving it to uh, Walt Rostow, uh, who, according to Cynthia, deep-sixed it, as, he put, as she put it. Um, <laughs> But in any event, the, um, the phone rang some years later at the Helms household. Cynthia picked it up. It was Robert McNamara. And he began to shout at Cynthia, poor Cynthia, who had nothing to do with this, uh, and berated her, her and said, why wasn't I shown this? McNamara had just got hold of it. It had been apparently survived and it had been declassified. And he was working on his famous mea culpa, his, his memoir at the time. And he began shouting at Cynthia, this, this could have made a difference. Why wasn't I shown this? Well, anyway, she was full of terrific stories like that. And I hope that if the book does nothing else, I hope it humanizes these guys. Um, I love the stories like Helms coming home at night and telling Cynthia that he has lash marks on his back, not literally, but figuratively uh, from Bobby Kennedy hectoring him to get rid of Castro by fair means or foul. Um, and Leon Panetta standing in Arlington Cemetery at the grave of a young woman, CIA officer killed in the, in the suicide bombing at Coast. Uh, when he gets word that a, an Al-Qaeda terrorist is in the crosshairs of a drone in Pakistan, but there's a problem. There are civilians in the shot should they take the shot? And Panetta decides, yes, do it. Um, and says to me at the end of this story, you know, Chris, all you can do is hope ultimately that God agrees with you. Uh, anyway, uh, those are the stories that I, I, I hope make the book um, more than just a, a dry history of the CIA. And I've, I haven't answered your question, which, I've, which I think oh, no, was- you You've gotten into it. And Helms, <laughs> I agree, is a fascinating 
character. I, I once interviewed him and uh, I got virtually nothing out of the interview. <laughs> he was being very, uh, yeah. uh, less than, being less than candid. Yeah. Uh, he's being very careful. Um, but I, I'm I was particularly drawn to the chapter, of course, uh, in your book about Carter, President Carter, because I'm nearing the end, reading page proofs now of my biography of Carter that will be out in May. And uh, of course, the, the biggest intelligence failure of his administration was uh, on the, re the, the revolution in Iran. Uh, he had no, virtually no warning of it and uh, completely misunderstood the politics of it. And of course, you know, Richard Helms is partly responsible for that because he was part of the agency that was relying on intelligence from the Shah's regime at the time. And Helms was even an ambassador in Iran. He was the ambassador when it all came, yeah. Sort of, I think bought into a lot of the assumptions that the foreign policy world felt about the Shah being inevitably going to be in power for many more years. And yet uh, Carter, advised by Admiral Stansfield Turner, the director of the agency at the time, uh, just didn't see it coming at all. Yeah, and, this was right. Sorry, go ahead. And well, I was just going to, by, by example, I think at the time of the revolution, right after the revolution in 19 February of 79, uh, the embassy, a very stripped down embassy by that point, nevertheless had only one Farsi speaker. And right. it was a CIA officer who was the Farsi speaker, but that was it. Yeah, yeah. This was a case where, um, where, where the CIA was just asleep at the switch. Um, and Stansfield Turner uh, later admitted that, said we, we just plain fell asleep. Um, this was a case where they did not have good intelligence, uh, but let's, let's not forget to talk a little bit later, Kai, since you brought up uh, cases where CIA directors did have good intelligence and it wasn't acti acted upon. Let's talk about 9-11 later. But to, to go back to the, the fall of the Shah of Iran, this was a, a, a complete fiasco. It, it was certainly on a short list along with the Bay of Pigs and WMDs, I, I would say. And, um, and I'm sure, Kai, that you, you're, you've gotten into it in detail in your book. Uh, but it was partly the result Bob Gates told me, uh, Bob Gates, who who knows a little bit about this stuff and obviously was one of the more successful CIA directors. Um, Gates told me that this was largely the result of a deal cut by Henry Kissinger with the Shah of Iran. And that the deal was, you provide us, you the Shah provide us with your listening posts along the Soviet border. Uh, and in return, we won't even contact the opposition, the political opposition. We will have nothing to do with that. We will rely completely on your security service, SAVAK, uh, and um, which was notoriously brutal, CIA trained, but, 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 but really beyond the pale. And um, nobody's idea of, 
an organization that would speak truth to power. Um, so the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, fatefully left um, Iraq and, and found a place outside Paris where the entire world press corps uh, spent lots of time and, and knew far more than the CIA knew about the opposition. So it was a, it was a fiasco. This had nothing to do with the relationship between Stansfield Turner and, and Carter, which wasn't good, uh, by the way. I mean, Turner was how do I don't Turner was a brilliant CIA director, a brilliant choice on paper, a four-star admiral ahead of Jimmy Carter in his class in Annapolis. Carter, arguably the most intelligent president of the 20th century. Uh, Turner may be smarter. Uh, but <clears throat> they didn't hit it off, and he was a Turner was a babe in the woods when it came to political infighting, and when he went up against the big new Brzezinski. And one of my favorite stories. Had no chance at all. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. My favorite story about Turner might be that early on he discovered that there was a 6:30 a.m. Oval Office quote-unquote, intelligence briefing that he knew nothing about. It was a regularly scheduled briefing. He picked up the phone, called Zbig, and complained to him. He said, Zbig, if it's an intelligence briefing, I should be there. Brzezinski said, you're absolutely right, Stan. And the next morning, they changed the name on the calendar from intelligence briefing to national security briefing. He still was not invited. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So let, let's talk about some of the successes, um, as, as you suggested. Um, you know, the, the most shocking one, me in your book, actually came at the in the epilogue, where you write about Trump getting a warning in January of 2019 yeah. from the World Threat Assessment on page 21 of that report, uh, saying. And I'd like to read it. It's just, it's really quite astonishing uh, given what we've gone through in the last year. The, the warning uh, reads, we assess that the United States and the world will remain vulnerable to the next flu pandemic or large scale outbreak of a contagious disease that could lead to massive rates of death and disability, severely affect the world economy, strain international resources, I mean, it's just, and Trump gets this, and apparently you report he was, he rejected it. He was annoyed to be um, told this, and. It's a fairly safe bet that he never even read that. Yeah. That, that page of the 2019 Worldwide Threat Assessment, because as I, as I wrote in an op-ed piece for the Washington Post a few months ago, uh, this, is, this is the unbriefable president. You cannot brief him because he, uh, he does not read. He is incurious. He thinks he knows everything worth knowing. And he brings, brought to the job, still brings to the job between now and January 20th, this contempt, loathing for the intelligence community, which he once compared to Nazi Germany. And he so he therefore uh, reflexively rejects anything they tell him. Uh, <clears throat> so 
as you say, Kai, it, 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 this was a little noticed uh, worldwide threat assessment, but every year without fail until 2020, there was a so-called worldwide threat assessment. And this is, as, as I think we all know, traditionally has been a chance where the CIA director, the director of national intelligence and others go to Capitol Hill and they brief this assessment publicly. And some of it is they do in closed session, but this is important because in my mind, uh, the CIA director is the honest broker of intelligence, not only, not only to the president, but to Congress and to the American people. And um, the worldwide threat assessment in 2019 was delivered. Nobody even noticed uh, or remarked upon that section of it. And in 2020, it never happened. I asked Bob Gates, heretofore mentioned Bob Gates, that had you have you ever heard of that not happening? He said, never. Uh, there's never been any case. Well, it didn't happen because the intelligence community, the the presumably the director and the DNI and the others did not want to go in public and say things that would piss off Donald Trump. Um, but not only did he ignore the 2019 worldwide threat assessment, but we are suffering the catastrophic consequences right now of a president with 300,000 deaths and, and mounting, of a president who ignored the warnings in his president's daily brief in January and February. He claimed that the first he'd ever heard of the coronavirus was January 23rd in the PDB and that his briefer, uh, Beth Sanner was her name, uh, said it was, quote, no big deal, end quote. Well, that is false on so many levels, it's hard to know where to begin. In the first place, everything in the PDB is a big deal. Secondly, if you're moreover, if it's being briefed to you orally, it's an even bigger deal. Bigger deal, yeah. And third, everyone I know who knows Beth Sanner, and I've talked to a bunch of people who do, who have worked with her, say there's absolutely no chance that she said any such thing. So um, there you are. Yeah. No, it's a sad story. Um, and we're paying for it yeah. this year heavily. Um, here's another issue that I thought was really quite interesting that you write about that is still an ongoing, I think, current imminent intelligence failure on the behalf of the, the White House. Uh, you, you intimate that, that the uh, CIA today is reporting very skeptically about MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and warning that he is a force of instability rather than anything else. And you quote Charlie Allen, a famous um, yeah. CIA officer suggesting that Trump's support for MBS is similar to the US's blind support for the Shah that took place under the Carter years and before, um, that of course backfired terribly. And you know that this suggests that perhaps we're repeating the same mistake all over again and ignoring good intelligence about uh, what's going on in the quote magic kingdom uh, that we'll, we'll pay for in, in, in the future. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I, Charlie Allen, first of all, is just a fascinating character. Um, and he was the one who brought 
who made that comparison between our our, our reliance on uh, MBS and our fateful uh, uh, blindness uh, about the Shah. And um, he was, um, <laughs> Charlie, is, he's, he's an octogenarian, he's in, in his mid eighties now, he, uh, he still goes to work every day with uh, uh, a church, at, at Chertoff's uh, group. Uh, it's full of stories, uh, remembers absolutely everything about his entire career. He was the so-called uh, NIO for warning. He was the guy, the national intelligence officer for warning. He was known as the CIA's Cassandra for 50 years. Um, and I asked him about um, the, uh, the Yom Kippur War. I don't know why, but you know, we, were, we were going way back. And he, and I said, this was one case where Charlie Allen, I'm sure there were others, but this was one case where he went home that night and failed to predict that the Arab nations would attack. Uh, and uh, I said, does that still bother you? And he said, Jesus, it's killing me. It's killing me. He's still losing sleep over that. Uh, anyway, he's a phenomenal character and, and a real, um, one of the wise old men of the CIA. So if he says it, it's good enough for me. Um, I, I've also, I had a lot of great sources in this book. Bruce Rydell uh, is another who, um, who, is, who is just really wise and um, was kind enough to read every chapter in progress and give me notes. And I had a, you know, how um, the, uh, the, CIA, the CIA has a gang of eight uh, looking over their shoulder. I had a gang of about 12 amazing uh, people who read chapters and gave me notes, and Charlie was one of them. So uh, Tom, that, Tom that Powers makes, was another. Oh, yes. Well, Tom Powers, too, yes. Well, uh, that causes me to ask you a question about your sources. Um, you know, when I was writing The Good Spy, I, I went to the CIA and had a meeting with the public affairs officer and and asked them if they could please, you know, just show me a redacted version of Robert Ames's personnel record or declassify some documents pertaining to his work. And, and uh, you know, this is a hero of the CIA that I was writing about. And, and the response was, oh, yes, you know, I think that's possible. Nothing ever happened. Um, and as a result, <laughs> <That's> I, <laughs> I ended up. I did talk to a lot of people like Bruce Riedel and retired CIA officers who wanted to talk, who were forthcoming yeah. and candid and, and wanted to tell their stories. But, oh my God, you couldn't get anything out of the agency itself. And I think this is really short-sighted of them. Uh, so did you get yeah. any cooperation at all from the very, agency? Very little, very little. Um, again, lots of promises and you know, and I, I, I interviewed the CIA historian and, uh, and, and but um, of course, most notably that the, the biggest gaps were that uh, Gina Haspel and, um, and Mike Pompeo would have nothing to do with me. Uh, were, I interviewed every other living CIA director, uh, but they declined to play ball. And frankly, Pompeo's assistant, it was, yeah, it's gonna happen. Yeah, and it never happened. Uh, they weren't even honest about it. 
Uh, Gina Haspel, at least to her credit, never told me she would. Um, and, and I never counted on it happening, even though I had people very close to her uh, work on her on my behalf. It never happened. She's a fascinating character, but we'll, we can talk more about her later. Um, one of the really fascinating things I found, Kai, I, I don't know if you found this in your experience, but you go into this kind of project thinking, okay, a whole bunch of stuff's gonna be classified and, and it's off limits. And then everything else is kind of fair game. And it's not that simple. It really depends on who's willing to talk and it depends on the personalities of the directors themselves. Um, some of them are by the book characters. David Petraeus, who you know, maybe understandably after his experience, I, I don't know, but David Petraeus practically bolted out of his chair when I asked him to talk to me about so-called signature strikes, which are lethal drone strikes on, uh, it's almost a kind of, um, drone strike uh, pro profiling. I mean, basically you're, you're striking suspected terrorists, but they're unidentified. You don't know who they are. You, you're just pretty sure they're bad guys in the wrong place. Uh, Petraeus almost ran out of the room and so did Mike Morrell. And yet Mike Hayden opined all afternoon about it because, and you know, nobody's going to tell Leon Panetta or Bob Yates what they can talk about and what they can't. They're, they're just going to say, they're going to say whatever they want. So much of it depends on the personalities, I think. Sure. So it's always worth asking, yeah. <laughs> knocking on the door. Right. Nobody wanted to talk about Imad Magnia, but anyway, as you, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yes. You know, that's a, that's a fabulous story and still a mystery story in some ways about yeah. how, it was, how the, the assassination of Mokneo was carried out, but there's still some controversy about that. Um, so I, I know we're running up about 30 minutes now. Um, so I want to ask you one more question on a on, sort of ending on a light note. You have a fabulous photo in your book of George H.W. Bush. <laughs> on a Philadelphia train platform, alone, completely alone, leaning against a billboard with the words haunted. Haunted, <laughs> yeah, right. About that. Tell us about that photo. And how well, this is just a piece of serendipity. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm lucky because I used to, you know, among other places I've worked and um, I've kind of worked all over the place in my career, but I, I was at Life Magazine way back in the day uh, when it was a monthly magazine, and I got to know Jermaine um, <clears throat> uh, Swanson and her husband Dick. Now they are—they should be a book in their own right. Uh, but Dick Swanson was a life photographer who uh, was in Vietnam uh, during the, the really bad years and uh, fell in love with a Vietnamese woman named Jermaine. Uh, got her whole family out of Vietnam. She started a restaurant in Washington called Germain's that became the place for- Oh, right, sure, place, yeah. And Dick Swanson was uh, a terrific photographer and he, he, he hit it off with George H.W. Bush. And uh, he had just become CIA director when that photo was taken and they just decided to ditch the security detail. And uh, he, he snapped that shot. Uh, but Dick Swanson's a terrific photographer. 
Well, it's a fabulous photo and a fabulous book. You should be very proud. It's a Thank you, contribution to the literature on the history of the CIA. And I, I was informed by it. And so at this point, I guess Patricia is going to host some questions from our audience. And Patricia, you're muted. Sorry, we've got a lot of questions today uh, as it happens. And we've got an extraordinary group. I think we have more ambassadors on today than we've had in a long time. We have Ambassador Elizabeth Bagley, uh, Donald Blinken, and of course, Ambassador Frank Wisner. And um, I'm wondering if Frank, if you would uh, start off the questions for us, please. Patricia, uh, thank easy you on me, Frank. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, first of all, Patricia, thank you for putting me at the head of the queue. I'm rather embarrassed by that. And Chris and Kai Bird, uh, what a fascinating event you both have just participated in. I want to pause for a second and ask you to go back to the issue that you underscored at the outset of your remarks. And that is what constitutes an intelligence failure and what is an intelligence failure? Uh, recently, it's become quite the fashion. I read it in John Gaddis, uh, Scott Anderson in his book, The Unquiet Americans, and now JFK, Frederick Lodgeval's uh, new biography of Kennedy, that the Cold War could have been brought to an end had we read the signals from the Soviet leadership beginning with uh, Stalin's death and going on through the early part of uh, the Kennedy administration. Do you all agree with that assessment? Does that make sense? Does it add up for you? And if it does, then why did we miss the intelligence that would have brought to a close the most consequential threat the United States faced after World War II? Um, and I told you to go easy, Frank. That's, <laughs> that's tough. Kai, you want to start? I mean, I... Well, actually, I have a, a good anecdote that answers part of that question. Um, in my biography of the Bundys, I interviewed a CIA analyst, and I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was he's a veteran, well-known analyst who wrote the uh, World Assessment Report in 1964. And in that report in 1964, he predicted that the Soviet Union was going to collapse in the late 1980s from either uh, internal uh, economic factors or from internal regional ethnic um, divisions. Um, and he went on to explain that the Soviet Union was a weak <coughs> adversary uh, uh, weak economically, but also politically and ideologically weak in that no one really believed anymore in the Marxist um, uh, ideology. And of course, this report was signed off on. It circulated in the LBJ White House and was completely ignored because the mindset at the time was that the Soviet Union was a vigorous, powerful adversary, and that we were going to be facing them in a Cold War for generations to come. This is what Henry Kissinger believed, and even Zbigniew Brzezinski in many ways. 
uh, it was the mindset. And it's very hard for even <clears throat> intelligence officers to break through conventional wisdom. And I think you're right, Frank, that that the, the Soviet Union, the, the Cold War could have ended much earlier if we had understood the nature of the, the conflict, um, which was closer to George Kennan's view than uh, to the sort of ardent cold warriors who were in charge of our policy for many of those decades. I, yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. And um, that what there was, there was no shortage of people who thought that the Soviet Union was in, in much more dire straits than, than, the, uh, than the powers that be. Um, and um, I remember Les Gelb, um, the, late, the late, Les, late great Les Gelb telling me that uh, he said, you know, for years before um, the Berlin Wall, Wall fell, it was, it was obvious to him and to others that uh, the Soviet, Soviet with its military uh, might, it was like, he said it was like the enlarged arm of a dying animal. But it was a dying animal, uh, and um, but they but the people who were saying that were up against the Bob Gateses and others who uh, were convinced that that it was all a trick, uh, that Gorbachev was uh, that 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 he was a fake, that uh, he would never he wasn't serious. Uh, I remember. Gates being described as Eeyore. He had this dark cloud over his head and he, he, was, he wouldn't buy it. <clears throat> um, having said that, I don't think there was a magic, I, I don't think there was a smoking gun in the intelligence either. Um, I don't think, do you, Frank? I mean, I don't think there was anything that's, that you could, you could latch onto and say with certainty that, um, that, that, and, that we could have all ended it much earlier. Okay, um, we're gonna go try and go boy, girl, boy, girl a little bit. Uh, is this Madeline Blinder or Alan Blinder? With a hand up. Aha, see I knew I had a feeling it was Alan. Do you have a question, Alan? Oh, we can't hear you. Can you unmute yourself? You know what, I wanna ask if I can, while you're trying to check that uh, sound for us, um, Chris and Kai, do you think you could go on for 15 minutes long? We've got so many questions here. I'd love to see if we can get to a lot of them. I, we've got Jeff Rosen and Gillian Sorensen and Stan Schumann and um, Bill Josiak and Kay Koplovitz and just to name a few of the people. I'll, Olivia, we, so we'd like to get to most of them if we could. So can I, I'll say just a word about intelligence failures just to, just to enlarge on, <clears throat> on that. There's, as, as Frank knows, there's a famous lament out at Langley that in this town, there are only policy successes and intelligence failures. Uh, and the CIA often gets blamed when <clears throat> that's not always the case. And 9-11, I think is a is a striking, startling example of that, where George Tenet 
and I report in great detail how on July 10, 2001, George Tennant and his lieutenants went over and uh, met with Condi Rice and Kofor Black pounded his fist on the table. Um, Kofor was head of counterterrorism and, uh, and they predicted an imminent Al-Qaeda attack in which thousands of Americans would die. And I believe that in all, all they had to do was convene a so-called principles meeting with heads of departments around the table and things might have uh, gone in a very different way. Uh, but that was not, in my view, an intelligence failure. That was a policy failure. Alan, do you have, is your, is your uh, microphone working? I'm sorry, it's not. Um, I hope we can fix it. But in the meantime, Gillian, do you mind asking your question? And we'll keep moving on. We'll come back to you, Alan, I hope. <clears throat> can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Good. Um, let's see, I have, there's a, okay. Um, this question takes us back in time a little bit. Um, my late husband, Ted Sorensen, uh, worked for John F. Kennedy as a very young man. Decades later, in the year 2001, he was approached by a man at a lunch at the Council on Foreign Relations who said he was a former covert operations agent from the CIA. And he wanted to tell Ted that something Ted had asked for and had never gotten, he wanted to tell him that the files on the assassination of President Kennedy were forever secret, closed, and inaccessible to anyone. I wonder if you've ever heard of such a thing? Are there such secret files? And if so, why nearly 60 years after the assassination, would that not be in the interest of the country to put them out? Excellent question. And, and I hope Kai can weigh in on this. I don't know the answer to the question. Um, we all- I actually think I may have the answer. Um, I served on the uh, staff of the Select Committee on Assassinations, which looked into the Kennedy and King assassinations and had a lot of, uh, did a lot of research at the CIA. We were one of the first uh, investigative committees that was allowed access to raw CIA files. And I mean, I, I don't know of any files that were not uh, shown to us, although there was a lot of agency pushback on our investigation. So what I, what I believe, and maybe Kai, you can elaborate on this is that, um, Richard Helms took a lot of files with him. Um, and, and I believe that some of the files on, on JFK may very well have been destroyed by Helms. Helms was no angel. Uh, and um, I wish Tom Powers were here so we could ask him, ask him that. But it, it seems to me that there were a lot of files that, that disappeared. Um, Helms was, as, as we talked a little bit about him before. Um, he was old guard. He believed that secrecy trumped everything else. Um, transparency, accountability to Congress. There was a real civil war in the agency 
as, as we all know, when Colby took over and revealed the, fam the so-called family jewels. Um, but I think some of those assassination files were deep six by Helms. What do, you, what do you think? What year would that have been, Chris? When well, do you that, think? That would have been, uh, Helms was there from 66 to 73. And um, so it was really right around um, 73 that, that, um, that, that Colby came in. And um, so it would have been in that period. Well, I, I think Pat Patricia's right that, uh, you know, there was a serious, Congressional investigation launched after Oliver Stone's film on JFK, and uh, a real effort was made to declassify by law um, everything that pertained to the assassination in the CIA files. And there were thousands of documents that were declassified in this, and I think a few were withheld for the usual reasons. But I'd be very skeptical that there is anything dramatic that we don't know. Um, you know, there may be some, some evidence about whether the agency knew about Lee Harvey Oswald's trip to Mexico or something, but, you know, nothing that would fundamentally change our, um, my view that Oswald was the lone assassin. Um, and I'm sure Richard Helms did take files home. I'm, you know, in those days, in the 50s and 60s, everyone took files home. And on this point, um, Julian Sorensen, and I, I want to jump in and tell you a quick story about your late husband who, you know, Jimmy Carter nominated to be director of the CIA. And Chris Whipple writes about this a bit in his book, and I write about it in my forthcoming biography of Carter. Uh, it's a terrible story because he was nominated. Uh, it was a controversial nomination. I think he might have been a very uh, interesting director if he had been confirmed, but uh, it quickly emerged that he had been a CEO, CEO during World War II. This added to controversy. Conscientious. In Korea, I think, right? Yes. <laughs> Please understand, he was a conscientious objector, which meant that he would not kill but he would serve as a medic or any other, any other is requested. But, well, actually, uh, what killed the nomination was not that, but the fact that one senator, a young senator named Joe Biden, <laughs> held a press conference and released uh, an affidavit that Sorensen had filed on behalf of Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon trial case in which he said, you know, what Dan Ellsberg did was uh, not unusual. He took papers home. I took papers home to write my book about John Kennedy. And uh, this added to the controversy and Biden himself went on the record saying that, that he was opposed to the nomination and, and that killed it. Um, a little piece of, of uh, an irony of uh, history, a little footnote. Yeah. <clears throat> That's Julian, fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, Julian, let me also say that uh, Jack Watson, um, whom you know, uh, was uh, who who was Jimmy Carter's last, and in my view, very effective White House chief of staff, um, has become a, a a really good friend, really good close friend, and uh, I know he's he is such an admirer of yours, and so I'm sure he would send his regards. Thank you. 
Yes, I am too. And I, I'm going to go next to Jeffrey Rosen, then Stan Schumann, and, and then Kay Koplovitz. So Jeffrey, you're up. Let's hope we do we have many more after that. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris, interesting discussion. Uh, my question right now is more about the role of the Central Intelligence Agency today. C could you speak to if that role has changed and how it's changed and therefore the role of the director of the CIA in let's call it the post 9-11 era because of what I understand to be <clears throat> the reorganization of the intelligence community yeah. that took place as a consequence of that, the appointment of the, uh, or the perhaps the greater significance of the DNI. Um, and as part of that, can you speak to whether the role has changed or the capabilities or need for capabilities have changed uh, in an age of cybersecurity? Yeah, it's a great multi-part question. Um, <clears throat> and um, it's changed, it's, it's changed in a number of ways. Um, and starting, let me begin with how it's changed since 9-11. Um, there's, there's been a real debate within the CIA, uh, you know, to use that old cliche, it's, it's kind of a, a battle for the soul of the agency. And, and it's, and it, what it comes down to is, 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 should the CIA be an intelligence gathering organization as it was originally intended to be, or is it a paramilitary killing machine? And that's a real debate, uh, an ongoing debate. Um, the irony is that um, under a constitutional law professor and Nobel Prize winner, Nobel Peace Prize winner named Barack Obama, uh, drone strikes escalated dramatically, uh, at least in his first term, not so much since then. Um, despite his pledge, uh, his intention to move <clears throat> that kind of paramilitary uh, lethal drone warfare out of CIA and, and to the Defense Department, uh, which never really happened on his watch. That's one of the controversial things about um, Avril Haines, the new director of national intelligence, is that she was very much involved in, in that. Um, so <clears throat> as for the, the DNI, um, it happened in 2004, I believe, the DNI was created as a result of 9-11. Of the idea was to coordinate, that have one person coordinate all the, all 17 intelligence agencies. And, it, you know, it's funny because I was lucky enough to have, um, the launch party for my book was, um, was thrown by uh, John Podesta and, and we had a couple of uh, CIA directors join us and, and, and we had um, Jim Clapper uh, and John Brennan <clears throat> there. And I proceeded to describe how I thought that the creation of the DNI had really created a mess and it was it just muddled lines of authority and uh, nobody understood it. Uh, who was the boss? And and they both ganged up on me. They, they really beat up on me. And basically, uh, Brennan was saying that he could he could never have run the CIA, uh, which he says is a 24-7 job without um, Jim Clapper having his back and Clapper being able to uh, take care of the other, coordinate the other agencies. So I think it can work. Um, the relationship can work when you have the right people in those jobs, not so much when you don't have the right people. And Denny Blair and Leon Panetta were a, a totally dysfunctional uh, relationship, uh, DNI and DCIA respectively at the time. Um, 
I still think that the, <clears throat> the CIA, NSA, of course, is a gigantic uh, intelligence service and a really important one, but, but um, I'm biased toward CIA. I, I think it's still the most important game in town, in part because, as I said before, the, the CIA director commands an army of analysts and covert operatives and drones and everything else. Uh, it is still, even though the DNI does the president's daily brief, it, so much of it comes from CIA. Um, it's still the most important game in town. Okay, Stan Schumann, and then um, Kay. Stan? So, thanks, Patricia, for all you do. Uh, and as usual, uh, Jeffrey stole my thunder, but I'll ask the question anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was on the 50th Avenue 90s, and I was just curious, that which we partially discussed now, whether or not the, the creation of the DNI, DNI uh, uh, after 9-11 really has changed substantially the role of the director. Yeah, it has, it has changed the, of course, the CIA director, as you know, now nominally reports to the DNI. Um, I still think the CIA director may be the mo more important uh, figure. Um, I think that at, at the end of the day, the, the CIA director, this is the person upon whose intelligence history-making decisions are made. And this has been true since the Cuban Missile Crisis when John McCone arguably made the difference between uh, a peaceful outcome and, uh, and, and world war. Um, it was <clears throat> on the other side of the ledger, um, also true with WMDs from which the CIA has yet to recover. Um, it's hard to overstate the consequences of the intelligence the CIA director provides. And um, so I think um, it's the DNI has been, again, when you have the right people in the job uh, and it, it can work well, uh, but I still think the CIA is the most important. Thank you. Patricia, you're muted. Sorry, Bill Drosiak, I want you to come on after Kay Koplovitz and um, hopefully we can get to Alan Blinder and Peter Corsell. I hope Alan's still around. Um, Kay, are you there? Yes, I am. <clears throat> there she is. Yeah. Uh, flashback to 2003 in the Valerie Plain um, exposure uh, at the CIA. I, as a you know, an operative, and I just wonder if there was anything uncovered in your research that wasn't you know, already, uh, you know, let in the public uh, from either her book or reporting on it. And, and more importantly, I think, um, you know, is there, I'm listening to uh, all of the episodes which are fascinating that you're talking about, but is there a, a, a group think uh, inside the CIA that is not diversified enough in our approach and enough, you know, feet on the ground, how much of it is it dependent on um, you know, electronic survey? I just kind of looking inside the CIA, CIA, you know, what is what are your thoughts about both free yeah. and is there enough diversification inside? Because it seems like it's a boys club, uh, very yeah. clearly. Well, um, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure I could tell you any more about Valerie Plame than than you already know. Um, 
in in the in the course of just as a, as an aside, I, I'll I'll note that I I did encounter a, a lot of Valerie Plame fans in 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 speaking to uh, CIA people who who think that she'd be great. One of them even thought she'd make a great CIA director. Um, <clears throat> diversity is something that the CIA has made a lot of progress. You know the old the old saying used to be it was white male and Yale. Uh, we've come a long way um, since those days. Um, I'm still offended that nobody tried to recruit me at Yale, but there you go. Um, <clears throat> the, I think it's become much more diverse and Gina Haspel by all accounts has really, really worked on that. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see who becomes the CIA director and I'd be curious about what you think, Kai, about why we haven't heard about a CIA, a CIA director yet. Um, I think there, there's obviously something going on. I, one of the, one of the um, candidates I've heard mentioned is an African-American named Daryl Blocker, who was, uh, a lot of people say, was, is, say he's just first rate. He, um, first African-American to run the clandestine service. Um, and, um, I've heard good things about him and, and he's a candidate. Michael Morrell is obviously, uh, would obviously be a less dramatic choice. But what do you hear, Kai, about that? Well, Chris, I'm, I'm just a simple historian and biographer and I'm not up to date. <laughs> I don't have the sources that, that you do uh, about what's going on today, but my instinct is well, as I began this session with my little story about William Langer um, saying that he wanted a small, only 25 guys, wouldn't be guys in those days, uh, to run the ONE, uh, I, I think the agency is in dire need of uh, reform. It needs to be downsized. It needs uh, intellectual leadership. And I'd, I'd like to see a Harvard history professor be picked as director. <laughs> but I know I'm an outlier in this business, so. I, I remember that Bill Buckley used to say that he'd rather be ruled by uh, the first 20 people in the telephone book than by the Harvard faculty. <laughs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, I have nothing against Harvard. Um, you know, Gina Haspel is still a fascinating character to me. Uh, you know, first woman to rise to the pinnacle of the intelligence world, a real mystery woman who's flown under the radar and, you know, cut her teeth as a covert operative in Africa. Um, I tell the story in the book about how she, uh, she latched on to the most unlikely mentor imaginable, uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was the architect of the CIA black sites and sent her to Thailand infamously. Um, and I have some untold stories from that experience there. Um, she, she had almost all of her top deputies are women. So the CIA is being run by a bunch of women as we speak. And uh, it's just interesting that we, that hasn't been more of a story. Fascinating, okay. Bill Drosiak, our, our, one of our featured writers, just finished a book on Macron a while ago, just published it. Uh, thanks, Patricia. Um, 
You know, since the 1950s, uh, the CIA has been obsessed by the leadership in Moscow. In fact, Chip Boland, as a former ambassador there, used to say there are two great lies in diplomacy. One is champagne has no effect on me, and the other one is I know what's going on in the Kremlin. So I, I wonder, Chris, in your research and reporting, uh, did you get a sense of, of where intelligence is heading now in terms of how we deal with a character like Vladimir Putin? Uh, the Russians seems to be uh, uh, being very successful in terms of uh, interfering with uh, the United States and its Western allies <clears throat> through cybersecurity. Why haven't we hit back in a more offensive way? Why haven't we, for example, released a lot of embarrassing revelations about Putin's corruption yeah. in ways that would send a signal to him, knock it off. If you, you know, yeah. you, if for deterrence to work, you have to have an offensive component. Did you ever, did you come across anything like that that tells us? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a combination of, uh, of Barack Obama having uh, decided not to pull the trigger on um, any kind of real reaction to the assault on the 2016 election, followed by a president who uh, a lot of CIA people believe is compromised by Russia, uh, either uh, financially or otherwise. And um, so it begins with, and my book begins with uh, that night in August of 2016, where John Brennan is uh, at Langley it, you know, late late in the evening, poring over the intelligence that's coming in, and realizes that uh, the Russian assault on our election is coming, uh, and uh, it's it's based on um, a human source in the Kremlin and lots of other uh, intel. And uh, Barack Obama would not retaliate. Uh, Jim Clapper told me he was in favor of launching a cyber attack that would <clears throat> really um, damage the Russian economy. We could have essentially taken down the Russian economy with a cyber attack. And the problem with that is that we are much better at offense than at defense. And uh, we are, um, but arguably that the CIA did not see the social media assault on the 2016 election coming. They saw all of the meddling with the election machines and the stuff that was in place. And arguably that was a big strategic intelligence failure. And now we've just suffered uh, an extraordinary cyber hack, uh, which is um, exposing just how vulnerable we are. And this, this may, in retrospect, at some point, we may look back at this as a, an intelligence failure uh, you know, on the scale of uh, Iran, you know, this we, we really, we really have been asleep at the switch for a while. That's so much to cover here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get Peter Corsell in here. He, he was a, a major figure at the CIA for many years. And um, Peter, are you with us? I, I am. I think I was a minor, <clears throat> minor figure. But thank you, Patricia. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> um, my, um, I was at the CIA for several years uh, earlier in my career. My question is, uh, you mentioned um, some of the candidates who are up for consideration now, including Michael Morell, 
<clears throat> I saw Tom Donilon drop out. Uh, you mentioned Blocker. Um, I note Sue Gordon and um, and um, Lisa Monaco have also been mentioned as potential candidates. I've also found it odd that they've waited so long. I, I've wondered if they, they, they didn't want to get a no number of other picks out um, first, but I think they haven't made a decision yet from, from what I've heard. My question is- You think they have not? I think they've not. I think yeah. they've not. I, yeah. I, I, on, on fairly good authority, I think they have not yet made a decision. I, Morell's being sort of written out in the press, um, although I, I, I think he may not completely be written out yet. What is your thought on what the agency needs now in its next director? If you look at someone like Morell, you've obviously got a long, you know, 32, 33 year veteran, an insider who, you know, could go back to a just the facts, ma'am kind of approach. Obviously, the agency has been so politicized in fairness, before the Trump administration, and, and I think even more so, just act, exacerbated to such an extent. Um, do, do you, when you think about what would be best for the agency and, and most importantly for what the agency produces uh, for policymakers, what, what qualities do you think, without sort of asking you to name a, a favorite or anything like that, what qualities do you think the Biden administration should really look to emphasize at this particular moment in time, given what we've all sort of been through around uh, the national security sphere? Well, uh, so I'll confess a bias um, about how I feel about CIA directors. Uh, and, and it's also sort of a spoiler alert, because if you, um, for those of you who may know my other book, uh, The Gatekeepers on the White House Chiefs of Staff, I, I happen to think that some of the attributes that, that serve White House Chiefs well also make great CIA directors. And it's no coincidence that Leon Panetta was the gold standard at both jobs. And it's the, re and the reason was that Panetta, I, in my view, you don't really need to know a lot about intelligence to, to, to be an effective CIA leader. Certainly, certainly Panetta was effective. Uh, and he, the reason he was is that he was, he'd been around the block he was grounded, he was comfortable in his own skin, and he could walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell uh, Barack Obama what he didn't wanna hear. And to me, that's the most important thing. He was also, of course, comfortable in the corridors of Capitol Hill and knew the White House inside out. And he was a, you know, he was a, uh, um, an iron fist inside a velvet glove, as, as they say about Leon. So I think, and, and other outsiders, I think, have been very successful. Uh, George H.W. Bush was the right guy at the right time to rescue the CIA from all the scandals of the 70s. Um, Bill Webster, I thought, uh, was the right guy at the right time uh, when the CIA was in trouble. Um, so I would have loved to have seen Pete Buttigieg, to tell you the truth, uh, as, a, as a candidate for C He's, but. They've given him transportation. I can't name more than two or three transportation secretaries in history. I think, I think he should have held out for CIA director. Um, I think it helps to have political savvy, and it doesn't necessarily hurt to be an outsider. Okay, I, you know, I just want to make sure because we've gone over time. Um, I want to thank you so much. We're going to see if we'll you'll take a couple more questions, um, but I know people will start to to drift away. Um, first of all, I wanna thank Nancy 
Collins for making this happen. She's I love spies, spy stories, uh, espionage, and um, and she's your biggest fan, Chris. So um, oh, I'm her biggest fan. So there you go. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you, Nancy, and thank you, um, Kai and Chris, for joining us today. If you don't mind staying on, I know I'd love to get to a couple more questions if we can. Sure, I'm happy to. Sure. Okay, great. So hang in with us if you care to, and we'll we'll understand if you you cannot. But thank you so much. You've had a stellar, stellar fascinating conversation and a great group of people on today. Um, Olivia, did you want to ask your question? Uh, yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Olivia Lee. I'm a high school senior at Moravian Academy, and I want to circle back to your opinion on the nomination of Michael Morell. I'm a regular listener of his educational podcast, and when I read how some have characterized him as a torture apologist, as well as a somewhat critical quote, about him from an anonymous source that was included in your book, I find it difficult to square with my own experience in Mr. Morell's reputation for decency and thoughtfulness in the national security circles. And I was wondering where this disconnect might be coming from. Well, um, thanks for the question. I, you know, I know Michael Morell and I think that maybe one of the reasons that this nomination is taking so long, this appointment is that, um, uh, Morell, I mean, there, there was a feeling that Morell was the odds on favorite to be Hillary Clinton's CIA director. He's obviously, he's a very smart guy and he's run the agency as acting director twice. Um, everybody, I think, feels that he, he's extremely competent. Um, so the question, the, the, the controversy over Morell, and, and one of the reasons, one of the reasons that he's unpopular among progressives is that he tried to stake out a kind of nuanced um, position on the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, the controversial um, techniques that were employed by the CIA after 9-11. Uh, he said that waterboarding, he considers waterboarding torture but he also insists, uh, having been in the room, having been uh, involved in the, watching the intelligence, that other techniques did produce actionable intelligence that disrupted plots and saved lives. That's his story, and he's sticking to it. And that position is anathema to a lot of people and, and certainly to a lot of progressives. And I think that may be, I'm completely speculating here, that the Biden uh, team may be trying to figure out whether it's worth having that fight uh, to get a guy who is obviously very competent and, and qualified. Uh, very interesting question. Thanks, Olivia. Alan, are you still with us? Alan Blinder, I see you're still there, but I'm not sure you're communicate, communicating. So let's go to Dr. George Parody. Is that how you pronounce your name? Uh, yes, it is. Um, yeah, I just had a question about uh, this uh, recent, uh, I don't know if it's an excuse, but that was given about uh, uh, making decisions currently that uh, it, it was didn't rise to the level of quality of evidence and uh, the combined information across the agencies was inconsistent. 
Uh, is that something that's a common uh, excuse given for uh, not taking a recommendation? I'm sorry, in, in, in regard to what? what? What evidence are you talking about? Oh, this is uh, more recently about the information that supposedly uh, President Trump was given about uh, uh, Soviet involvement. Oh yeah, that there were there were there were bounties placed on yeah. on the uh, so um, there have been so many um, controversies with Trump and the intelligence community that it's almost hard to um, to recall the exact details on that, but. Again, reportedly, there were bounties placed on the heads of American military in Afghanistan by the Russians. Um, this was intelligence uh, reportedly, uh, I don't have any inside knowledge of it, uh, that was in the president's daily brief and, and was, was briefed to the White House and Trump took no action. And the the excuse, uh, the, the response of the Trump White House, as I recall, was that, well, it was unreliable. Nobody knew if it was, there were dissenting voices. Well, there are always dissenting voices. Uh, on every intelligence assessment, there, there's, there are always, it's never unanimous. Uh, so even if that were the case, I, I think it was a pretty, um, pretty weak defense on, on Trump's part. Good question. Stan Cohen, you're going to be our final question, okay? Okay, well, thank you, Patricia. Thank you. So today was a big day in news and uh, exactly the, the things that you're talking about uh, with uh, the Russian hacking. Um, so how dangerous is it that they have gotten nuclear, two nuclear weapons, nuclear codes, and then I'd also like to ask what you know or what you think about the Biden's uh, investigate or you know, Lindsey Graham's news that he wants to have a special prosecutor uh, on the Biden investigation. So I've, I've been reading, I mean, maybe you've been following the news more closely than I have today, but was, was there a suggestion that they had hacked into the nuclear codes? Yeah, nuclear weapons and codes. There's some banner that I saw on MSNBC. Well, I wouldn't believe everything you see on the uh -huh. banner, but, and, and I say that respectfully since um, I do a lot of commentary on MSNBC, but um, that, that would be really distressing. And it's already, even if that's not true, it's, it's pretty alarming the extent to which this hack apparently succeeded. Um, and I, I think it goes to what I was talking about before. We've been asleep at the switch and It'll be interesting to see if, I mean, we've certainly had let our guard down under Trump when it comes to Russia and the, the, the Russian threat. There's, there's no question about it. Even, even as, you know, the CIA is remarkably good at kind of keeping its head down and trying to ignore the, the bluster that comes out of the Oval Office. But I still think that we have had our guard down. And I would, I would, Underline this, I mean, I'm reminded of what Leon Panetta told me. I asked every CIA director to tell me what keeps you up at night? What's, what's the one thing? And Panetta said to me, it's the possibility of a major cyber attack by a foreign country that could take down our electrical grid uh, and plunge us into chaos. And we are 
essentially defenseless against that. And I think that's a huge, huge problem that needs to be addressed. Wow, that's quite something to end on. Um, do you have any An last upbeat note? <laughs> <laughs> last thoughts for you, Kai, too? Uh, Maybe Kai's got an uplifting anecdote to end with. <laughs> oh, I, I was most impressed by Frank Wisner's question at the very beginning of the Q&A. And so I'd like to circle back to it and, and uh, suggest that we need both a, a CIA and a new CIA director who can uh, challenge groupthink and think outside of conventional wisdom and uh, you know, look at the world with a fresh, a fresh eye and, and uh, question our assumptions about how we operate in the Middle East in particular, and uh, also with Russia. I mean, these are, are fundamental issues. And I think too often I see from my reading of history and, and biography that uh, you know the intelligence that is good that emerges out of uh, something like the CIA is often ignored by the policymakers because it doesn't fit into the conventional wisdom. And that's what you have to constantly be on the watch out for. Well, that was Agreed. amazing. <laughs> I'm sure you, uh, most people can't wait to dig into this book. Um, we did sell a number of them before. I will continue to, but we will, um, we're going to get I hope some book plates signed by you, Chris, to send to people yeah. who buy the book. Sure. And I want to thank you both. I mean, what a distinguished group, both Chris and Kai together. And what an amazing audience you've attracted today. Um, clearly, uh, people are fascinated with, um, with this topic. And it's very, very important. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, all of you. We're going to be taking some uh, time off for the holidays and back with a very, very strong schedule for the new year, um, which I'm sure many of you have gotten it, but um, please join us um, for a fantastic schedule um, in the new year. And thank you. Thank Thanks you. Holidays. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.